0: Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Penabad. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie.
1: Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Penabad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They're the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world today, I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, Matthew Soles. Matthew is a licensed architect and the founder and director of the award-winning firm of Matthew Souls Architecture. In parallel, he is a professor of architecture at the University of British Columbia and has been a visiting associate professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Design, where he is also a graduate, and visiting faculty at SciArc in Los Angeles, among other universities. Matthew's current research focuses on contemporary capitalism and architecture. His book, *Icebergs, Zombies, and the Ultra-Thin, Architecture and Capitalism in the 21st Century is a fascinating read, and it demonstrates how investment imperatives shape what and how we build on a global scale. Matthew is also a co-founder of Architects Against Housing Alienation, and recently the Canada Council selected this organization to represent Canada at the prestigious 2023 Venice Biennale of Architecture, where I believe, Matthew, you are speaking to us from today. So welcome, Matthew. I'm so happy to be speaking with you.
2: Thank you so much, Carrie. I'm so excited to uh, be speaking with you. And yes, I'm I'm chatting with you on a laptop on a communal work table inside the Canada Pavilion in the Giardini of the Venice Biennale. Uh, the group I'm part of, Architects Against Housing Alienation, has occupied the pavilion for the duration of the Biennale as our campaign, not headquarters, but heart quarters. Um, for, uh, yeah, an architectural activist campaign that we're working on called Not For Sale. So anyway, I'm speaking to you right from here, and there's visitors walking past um, and people working on the campaign all around me. So it's an exciting place to talk to you from.
1: Yes, I'm, I'm excited to be hearing more about uh, the project that we're going to be talking about um, today, in fact. But before we get there, Matthew, where did you grow up? And how did this experience shape your thinking about architecture and cities?
2: I love that question. Um, I grew up in Vancouver, um, Vancouver, Canada. And um, I mean, it's it's in so many ways, it has affected, impacted and informed my thinking about cities and architecture. One way is that uh, you know, Vancouver is a place uh, that has a very long and rich and wonderful indigenous cultural history. It's been inhabited by indigenous peoples for a very, very long time. So Vancouver present-day Vancouver is on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. So this um, has afforded me the opportunity to learn about indigenous cultures and the processes of land dispossession and colonization that continue to this day and think about how they impact um, contemporary challenges around something like housing so it's a process that I'm I, I'm learning every day uh, about and and that's something that that really is um, Important to me. Um, also, Vancouver is, I mean, in its settler history, um, it's a very young city. It was incorporated in 1886. And um, that means that it's a, a place that is um, kind of inventing itself. It, it's always um, consciously working on itself. It's not, you know, I'm speaking to you from Venice. Venice is a history, place with a very different history that is, many things are set and fixed. It's very hard to change the built environment. So Vancouver is a very dynamic place. um, And it's also a place um, of high density on North American standards, um, high density residential environments, much of which uh, have been created in the post 1980s era. A lot of um, condominium towers uh, define downtown Vancouver. So, and in relation to that, it's a city that real estate plays a very prominent role in the consciousness of the city. It's a city. It's, it's not the only city where this happens, but it's a city where it's hard to escape conversations about land values, affordability. It's the front of everybody's minds. Dinner tables, conversations in coffee shops, can't open a newspaper article without it being there. So this kind of high density tower, condo environment, very new in combination with uh, this sort of real estate ethos town and really a kind of ongoing, quote unquote, crisis. Um, So ongoing that actually maybe it's not even a crisis. It's just how the system is uh, kind of systemically inclined to work um had uh, you know, really informed uh in a really dramatic way the kind of in my impulse and desires to work on the book, um to kind of question architectural and urban form in relation to um questions of affordability, questions of finance logics, development logic. So yeah, very, very big. I probably if I grew up in a, I very well may have not worked on this book or this topic if I was not in Vancouver.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think your answer to that question provides a beautiful backdrop, trying to understand, you know, how, where we grow up, you know, shapes our, you know, the built environment shapes our context, obviously, but really the way we look at the world and and oftentimes maybe the path in which we forge a career or a, a lifelong pursuit. So I would like to turn to your book, um, your recent book, most recent book, Icebergs, Zombies and the Ultra Thin Architecture and Capitalism in the 21st Century. Um, it really succeeds in showing us how contemporary architecture is not only the result of capitalist principles, but you argue it can also be their enabler. And this idea really cements a profound bond between capitalism and architecture. But before we discuss some of the fascinating case studies that you describe in the book, could you define um, simply for our listeners, what is finance capitalism?
2: Yes. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I think one thing to it's important to say is that, um, I mean, capitalism is a human invention. It's a construct. And since its very inception, it always has a necessary financial component. And this is in relation to the provision of credit, right? So, the role of an individual corporation or organization providing a loan to an individual organization or corporation and generating profit from that loan that lending of money is integral to the functioning of capitalism so we might say and and so in a very kind of general sense finance at its very most elemental um kind of um, performance is around the lending of credit, the distribution of credit. So from that kind of very simple um, description, we can, we can say that all capitalism is partly finance capitalism, it always involves a financial component. However, at the very same time, um, historians and theoreticians look at the history of capitalism and break it up into different periods or epochs, right? And so, therefore, you could say, well, oh, this period, we associate the behaviors and patterns of the market with industrial capitalism, right? Large factories, um, making cars, let's say Ford, um, you know, making cars on an assembly line, selling those cars at a markup, right? And then the profit is derived from that markup. Um, We call that industrial capitalism, Um, and there's agrarian capitalism, there's consumer capitalism. So an important thing is that when we think of capitalism, actually, there's many different types of capitalism, and um, we can associate them with different historical timeframes. Now, finance capitalism is um, described by many observers as uh, the period of history in which the financial performance and financial functions of capitalism take on a very prominent and dominant and uh, domineering way. And, you know, the scholars of finance capitalism tend to identify roughly 1980, you know, it's a blurry mark, maybe is it 1975, is it 83? Somewhere around there, a bunch of things fall into place that mark the emergence of the finance capitalist era. So we can say roughly from 1980s to the present, we are all living in an era, era in which the financial function of capitalism, with it as all living present, has risen to the most prominent kind of um, role within capitalist logics and behaviors. That can be demonstrated and measured in many, many different ways. Um, for instance, um, you know, stock exchanges have existed for a very long time. They didn't come into being in 1980. But if you look at the number of corporations that are listed on the world stock exchanges and the amount of capital within those world exchanges and add it all up, and, or look at it, the, the, the accumulative amount over time, there's an exponential rise in the post 1980s era. So that's one measurement of the importance of the stock market, but the stock market, the investing in financial instruments, in this case stocks, in the hope of making um, returns from the rise in value, um, so investment in an instrument, speculative desire that you buy it for $1 and, you know, your Microsoft stock and get to sell it when it's worth $200. That would be a kind of quintessential finance capitalist behavior. Another example is, say, look at car companies. Um, so I referred back to the Ford's, you know, Ford Corporation making cars on the assembly line and deriving most of their profit from, you know, the, co- the difference between the cost of making the car and how much they've sold you. So Greta R. Krippner is um, a sociologist, a, a economist, who's measured very closely the financialization of the American economy. And she looks at car companies as an example. And she's like, very interesting. In the 1980, post-1980s era, car companies start getting heavily involved in how car loans are distributed. So not only do they make the car and profit off the markup still, they start to make lots of money on lending providing the lending capital that car lots and individual buyers use to buy the cars so that would be an instance of them being kind of more purely in an industrial capitalist mode and shifting being like wait a minute we can start making money by investing in the financial instrument of the credit and receive the interest off of that so that marks a kind of shift, and you can see that shift in many, many different layers of the economy. So it's not, of course, that industrial capitalism goes away or consumer capitalism goes away. It's it's a kind of shift in emphasis um, into you know stocks, um, investing in another. Uh, interestingly, like a, the, the biggest market in the world is um, currency markets. So the amount of money moving through. Um, the the investing in U.S. dollars versus euros versus Japanese yens and all the kind of micro uh, movements that occur in a day is actually the biggest uh, uh, capital market in the world. And it's purely a speculative, um, highly financialized market. It's all about the oscillations of the financial instruments of currency. So anyway, you can look across so many different domains that register this kind of shift to... Um, speculative investment that that marks the finance capitalist era.
1: yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that was a very um good explanation of uh what could sometimes seem for those outside of the worlds of e- e- like economy uh, a difficult concept to understand. And I guess, for the purposes of our show, we're interested in how these forces shape the built environment. And in your book, yeah. you describe, finance, or you define, or I don't know if you coined the term actually, but finance capitalist architecture. So you're interested, as far as I can see, in the um, relationship, again, from between architecture and capitalism in this era of finance capitalism. And you describe finance capitalist architecture as having five characteristics.
2: Mm-hmm. Matthew,
1: what what are these characteristics? Right. Okay.
2: Well, um, okay, yeah, really good question. Um, So the first of the five is that finance capitalist architecture and the associated urbanism that comes with it tends to uh, produce what I call spaces of crises. And so this means that um, as um, buildings and units of buildings get so deeply enmeshed in financial circuits um, that, have, uh, that are fueled, by the way, with what many people call the giant pool of money or the great wall of money. Because another important story about the era of post-1980s finance capitalism is when you add up all of the investable capital in the world, which people do, it is a kind of measurable thing, it is also exponentially increased. And this means that um, there's, and a heightened amount of pressure on the built environment to absorb that investment capital. like Because as, as many, I, I wasn't the person that kind of um, invented this description, but when you have this giant pool of money, there hasn't been a parallel increase in the number of investable locations for it to go. And so in the logic of investment capitalism, which is to say that you must make the money work, you can't just let it sit, you've got to seek the return on it. It's like, where do we put it? Where do we put it? And there's been this outside, this huge, historically unprecedented desire to funnel it into the built environment. So why I say this, so tying it to markets with their ups and downs, and then with this huge kind of hose of money into the built environment, produces a kind of cycle in which the the periodization between boom and bust is amplified and in in many cases, increasing frequency and this produces a highly unstable uh, built environment in which you get things like massive overbuilding in certain places to kind of meet what is seen to be the kind of need to uh, uh sell units and sell housing to like all these investors, um, and then and then this realization that oh my god, we've built too much, and then you have mass vacancies. Underuse use is one illustration of this space of crises. But another is that the, there are widespread global affordability crises, like across the world New York, Toronto, Vancouver, London. And this um, tying to things with the financial market in combination with this huge spigot of mo- the giant pool of money is fueling those affordability uh, crises, which are part and parcel of the production of the space of crises. So anyway, that's number one. Number two is that uh, there's a tendency for the speculative wealth storage role of architecture to be amplified. And what I mean by that is that, um, is again, in connection to this giant pool of money needing places to go, that, that, that systemically, there's more of an emphasis on how architecture can store wealth and, and there's a mutation in the physical form of how of buildings themselves in terms of performing, the, performing this role and to not only store it, but in this, in, in, in performing the, um, the capital gain function, the investment function that is at the core of finance capitalism. So number three though, is that, um, It is the very means of inequality, right? So, so spaces of crises, spaces that are geared towards speculative wealth storage, also are the territories in which inequality itself plays itself out, because these um, kind of mutations and intensification of investment are deployed in a very uneven place, in uneven fashion in our worlds, and. and, and generate places of incredible luxury and incredible um, kind of disinvestment. And those things are longstanding in our built environments, but I think they're amplified in the era of finance capitalism. Number four is what I call iconic standardization, which is a kind of paradoxical thing, which the built environment, the architecture of finance capitalism has on one hand, a tendency to create buildings and units that are highly standardized, homogeneous. And I'm gonna get into a little bit why that is the case, but yet paradoxically, there's also an impulse towards iconic form. Now, sometimes you see this in what I call spatio-financial milieus, where you have, uh, as an example, fields of uh, mass amounts of very standardized reduced housing that is easily invested in and easily exchanged, sitting in close proximity to a highly iconic building, which is meant to attract investor desire through the iconicism. Like, oh my God, this is so exciting. Look at the form. Look at all the international press it's getting. And this is like irrigating the adjacent homogeneity with investment desire. Sometimes, though, even more paradoxically, you see iconic standardization and or sorry, iconicity and standardization occurring in the very same building. And you're like, how the heck is that possible? But like in New York City, for instance, there's a great example of this that I talked about in my book. It's uh, a condominium tower in lower Manhattan. It's very tall and it's made up of these, um, you know, square, repetitive condominium units which themselves are highly um, kind of homogeneous and transferable, but there's this offsetting that happens to produce this very iconic silhouette on the skyline. So this is a kind of moment where these two opposing forces are in one place. Lastly, point number five is that uh, finance capitalist architecture um, increases the liquidity of buildings themselves. Now. I have to say, if it's okay, why is liquidity important? So um, financial markets require a certain level of liquidity to perform the investment function in an optimal way. Now, all financial instruments can be measured in terms of how liquid they are. And you can think of all assets, whether it's like an antique car or a painting, or a stock in Microsoft on a spectrum. And at one end is like totally illiquid and at one end is totally liquid. Now for your viewer or your listeners, the most liquid, like, so in, I'm sure many people are familiar with this. um, The most liquid asset there is in classic understanding of economics is cash. So like a one US dollar bill You just have it in your wallet. It's exactly the same as every other one US dollar bill. And you can just hand it off, right? You're like, I want to buy that candy bar. Boom, totally no friction in its use. At the very other end of the liquidity spectrum in classic economic descriptions, what's there? It's actually very interestingly, almost always people say it's real estate. And by real estate, I also understand architecture. And why is it so illiquid? Because it's big, it doesn't move around. And to buy and sell a piece of real estate takes all of this incredible amount of time consuming work, like you got to go visit it. I mean, a a supposedly responsible investor would be like, I've got to go visit it and look at it It takes time. I've got to hire a bunch of professionals, a real estate agent, a lawyer, and it's going to take a bunch of money and a bunch of time to to make the transaction, highly frictional. Therefore, it's illiquid. Now, that illiquidity is a challenge, a problem for the finance capitalist mindset. It seeks to achieve in the built environment heightened liquidity and move buildings along that spectrum to become closer to cash. Can't become exactly like cash. That would be impossible. But... In the very physical design of the buildings, I argue there is a kind of um, impetus to generate this heightened liquidity.
1: You know, you're not an economist, Matthew. You know, you are a, you are an, you're an architect, (laughs) you're a designer, Um, (laughs) but this is what I, this is what I find really fascinating about your book is that you are trying to first understand and describe the Invisible forces, which in this case are the financial models that give rise to physical form. And I do think your book is important, certainly for those who are interested in questions of capital, but perhaps even more important for designers like yourself and 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 even myself um, to really understand the forces that give way to the built environment. Because generally, um, I would argue that architecture follows um these financial models. It's, it doesn't necessarily generate them, although we're going to talk in the second half <laughs> of this conversation how um, it can certainly become an enabler of these models and sometimes becomes much more um, of a kind of symbiotic relationship. And so we are going to take a quick break, but when we return, we're going to continue the conversation with Matthew Souls. And in the second half of the conversation, he's going to describe some of these fascinating urban and architectural projects that have arisen as a result of the interrelationship between architecture and finance capitalism as well as the project that he is engaged in uh, right now Um, and he is speaking to us from Venice as he mentioned Um, he's going to talk to us about his passion about housing in general and the work that he's doing as part of the collective that is being represented here at the Venice Biennale so do not miss the second half of this conversation we will be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
0: Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world
1: voice america programs are now available on your favorite connected device including amazon alexa and google home through streams with apple podcasts tune in at Radio.
2: listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast
1: hey alexa Play Finding Your Frequency podcast.
2: If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation
1: with architect and educator Matthew Soles. And before the break, we were talking about his fascinating book, *Iceberg Zombies, and the Ultra-Thin, Architecture and Capitalism in the 21st Century. And I think in the first part of the conversation, Matthew, you laid out the foundations of an understanding of financial capitalism and how this has given way to what you describe as financial capitalist architecture. So in the second half of this conversation, I'd like to turn now um, to the question of the case studies in the book and perhaps... Um, elaborate on more individual architectural forms of contemporary finance, because I was fascinated really to read through your case studies. And one of the example that I knew little about was the iceberg homes. Tell us about yes, this. Yes, what is yes, an iceberg? Yes. What is an iceberg home? Right. <laughs> okay.
2: So um, an iceberg home is uh, a home that has a, 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 a shape a little bit in terms of proportions like an iceberg so what is an an iceberg you know when you see one a photograph or you see i've never seen one in person an actual iceberg but you know there's a a relatively small amount of ice visible above the surface of the ocean and then a much larger um, form of ice submerged beneath right so iceberg homes are, are in a very it's a very simple and descriptive thing which is to say homes that have a very large subterranean component so mega basements so very large basements that sometimes extend not one but two or three floors beneath grade, and the term was coined in a kind of popular culture in london um, at the beginning of this century. So this is where the, the, the it was invented, the London press and people were like, what are these new things that are happening around London? They, they're iceberg homes, they're iceberg mansions. And, um, you know, one of my points about finance capitalism in relation to architecture is that giant pool of money flowing into it mutates buildings. It changes their physical shape in part to absorb that capital. And this is a very direct example of this. Basically, um, London, like New York, like Hong Kong, is, is a location where there's an extra amount of investment desire, an extra amount of international capital flowing through. So what you had was this capital flowing into central London, into neighborhoods that, had ver- that have very strict zoning rules about what you could do above grade in many cases lots of historic heritage structures that had to be maintained and you had these international buyers being like we want a property there but we want to um we want it to be much more extravagant than what we're allowed to do above grade and so there's a very interesting quote of an architect who was very involved in these in the early days he was like you know we were looking at all the rules and we realized that there was nothing stopping us from building a building that would extend to the other side of the planet under there right so they literally started making all of these structures that would have underground swimming pools underground car museums wine storage like these opulent kind of caves of excess and um so this is and and you got to think this is a place that literally stores the money. It's very expensive to build these things underground. Um, It's exorbitant. So, And they store all of these kind of riches and wealth. So that's like one kind of example. And, you know, London was this epicenter of this, but you do find them in other places where there's kind of Like Aspen, for instance, very different context. In in Aspen, there are all these rules and regulations around protecting the kind of natural vistas and landscapes and the tone of, of, uh, you know, a kind of mountain resort. So, again, there, a lot of investment capital from around the world. And by the way, these are people who are buying not second homes, but third, fourth, fifth, sixth homes. And they are often very rarely used because of this peripatetic travel around, you know. So maybe they're used for a month a year or two months of a year. So there's an interesting kind of underlayer to all of this finance capitalist architecture, which is lots of it's very underused. So anyway, those are iceberg homes.
1: Well, you know, again, there's a fascinating cross uh, section in your book, and I would recommend those of uh, you that are listening that haven't purchased or read through the book to. Um, to engage it because it not only has um, great uh, verbal, descri- I mean, written descriptions, but also um, you accompany it with a number of great drawings. And, you know, a drawing is worth a thousand words. So the cross section of the iceberg home in the book is a great one. Um, so, unlike the iceberg home, though, you mention another example, which is the ultra thin pencil skyscrapers that are defining Manhattan's new skyline. And really it can be said that these are the boldest physical representations of the idea of finance capitalist architecture. And perhaps no conversation about this particular building type can be complete without a discussion of 432 Park Avenue by Rafael Vignoli Architects. Uh, Matthew, could you describe this project for our listeners?
2: Yes. So um so, it's a condominium tower, and I think it's important to note that it is a condominium tower because condominium itself is a relatively recent legal invention that plays a very important role in finance capitalist architecture. But it is in its, if you look at its floor plan, it's a perfect square, and it rises to a tremendous height in midtime Manhattan, and each of its four sides is identical. And it's facade, those four facades are notable for the continuous, there's no differentiation between what's at the ground of the building. So, you know, sometimes people say, how does the building meet the ground? And something unique happens there to kind of emphasize its groundness. And then it rises identically all the way up to the top. You think some buildings, they have little hats or parapets or lights to make it special. This is a kind of incredibly abstract extrusion of a square with four sides identically the same that have on those four sides a grid of square windows. So it's sort of an incredible um, abstraction that is almost totally out of place. It can be um, kind of in, in many ways like anywhere. And it has, despite being one of the tallest residential buildings in the world um it has hardly any units in it because the units are many of them entire floors right so they you know so floor 52 is like one entire unit four fifty three another
1: unit. Yeah, because so the building has, is about a hundred by a hundred, right, Matthew? So just to right. give just that's to give right. our listeners a sense, it's about a hundred feet by a hundred feet, thirty meters by thirty meters roughly. Yeah. And so yeah, you know what you're saying is that each level is one res essentially one residence.
2: Not always, but many of the levels. So so despite it being massive and on the skyline, it actually has hardly any housing units in it, which is an interesting also paradox. Um, and and okay, so <laughs> why this is such an important um, example of finance capitalist architecture? Oh, it should be said that it's also. Oops, one of my earbuds fell out in the pavilion right here. Let me put that back in. Um, is that it's a tremendously slender tower? So it and a number of towers in Midtown Manhattan are totally unprecedented in how thin they are, and that. Thinness connects to the fact that on many of the floors, there's only one unit, right? Like if you think of a a more historically typical residential tower, you might have five units on a floor, six units. Literally, the size of the floor is bigger. And literally, that translates into a building that's more boxy, it's less slender. So why does this relate to finance capitalist architecture? Now, remember before the break, I talked about that liquidity spectrum. Now, I argue that the very proportion of the building, the very slenderness, and the very fact that, that there are these isolated units alone in the sky achieves heightened liquidity. It moves the units, those condo units, down the spectrum towards cash because it is a radical disentanglement, a radical separation from a shared collective life among different human beings. And so why is that connected to liquidity? Because to go to invest in real estate in a responsible way, historically speaking, you had to learn about what you were investing in and you had to learn about the particularities of the neighbors, you had the the neighborhood, like what it was like and what it felt in the building. Now, this in a subtle, but yet I argue radically profound fashion, puts the a unit of investment high in the sky, not connected to any neighbors or any fashion. You, you enter into the lobby of that building, ride up an elevator shaft into your unit directly. There's no shared circulation where you can meet your neighbors. There's no chance for like some, um, the smell of cooking in an adjacent unit to come in. All of these little elements of de-socialization actually make the unit simpler and that simplicity makes it easier to invest in and that easier to invest in makes it function in a in a more um powerful investment way in the terms of the logic of finance capitalism so one of the big stories i think of finance capitalist architecture is it's a story of separating us from other human beings it's about atomizing us Um, Like very interestingly, like the iceberg homes bury all of this living space literally underground. It's you can't even see out into the neighborhood. You can't also connect with your neighbors in any way. So the 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 tower is like the inverse. the uh, The pencil tower is the inverse extreme of the um, iceberg home subterranean space. Just in kind of opposite sort of sectional poles. One in the sky and one in the uh, deep in the
1: earth yeah i actually um again we we could probably talk a lot more of any one of the examples um and i want to get to maybe a third one we could we could talk about many more because again it's not just at the level of the architecture that you argue that this is made manifest, but it's also at the level of the design of cities. And you um, talk in the book about uh, ghost urbanism and a number of other um, kind of fascinating urban examples. But if we could maybe talk about one uh, last example, uh, which um, basically you argue that, again, finance, capitalism and globalization are dramatically impacting housing models. We were just talking about the pencil skyscraper being one. Um, but, and this is a topic that you're particularly passionate about, not just in the book, but in your own work. Um, and maybe another one of these fascinating examples that you discuss is the Vancouver Housing Project and what you refer to as philanthropic urbanism and how it's impacting housing today. Um, I how, how does this project work?
2: Okay, this is a very complex and, and nuanced topic. And right. I'm and gonna I'm going to ask
1: it, you to just, describe it in like yeah, two yeah, yeah, minutes, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: two minutes, but <laughs> okay. 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 So, so, yeah. uh, so in the book, I use the example of a BRK Ingalls, he's the, 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 the star architect um, that does product all around the world, including this project in Vancouver called Vancouver house. And it is not incidentally, coincidentally, a con- another condominium tower. And, um, in its marketing they they had listed 20 reasons for why someone should buy a unit in this brk community by the way these are not cheap units this is like very fancy extravagant expensive units and they had an international marketing campaign which is also a very interesting dimension to all of this we take these for granted actually right like oh of course you've marked these things internationally. this is a totally new phenomenon you know like to be like marketing a housing project in taipei um you know, that didn't happen in 1930. Anyway, so the marketing campaign was like, here are the 20 reasons why you should invest in this building. Number one was that it's super prime property. And that's very interesting. Like, they explicitly, it's an uh, investment mandate. Number five or something was, you know, well, we're going to have a, a, a fleet of BMW cars that everyone can just use as part of the building. Anyway, somewhere around number 15 or 16, I can't remember exactly right now. It was to to participate in the world's first one-for-one home gifting program. So this was an instance of you can participate in what I now call like spatial philanthropy. Now, what this meant was for every unit that was built in that condominium tower in Vancouver, there was one unit of housing built in phnom penh cambodia in a neighborhood um that many people call have called a slum, and in the literature it was that we will build this unit for a quote-unquote family in need and this these units were as you might imagine very very um inexpensively built Um, it wasn't they weren't in a big fancy condominium tower they were in this kind of low-lying um residential construct where you kind of climb up a ladder to enter very rudimentary and 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 so the marketing campaign was like you can benefit from the um, ethical position that you will be able to occupy um, by helping a family in need and they even gave the opportunity for some buyers of the condominium in Vancouver to fly to Phnom Penh and give the keys to this to the to the family in need so this is a very particular instance, very extreme of what I think is a larger phenomena. And that's the thing about all of these. So an iceberg home in London is a very specific thing. A pencil tower in midtown Manhattan is very specific thing. But I argue that they are extreme manifestations of much broader phenomena that are often acting in subtler ways. So there's this kind of, um, the investor in the Vancouver tower. That's super prime. The number one reason gets to benefit from the uh, Apple gains that they're seeking to acquire. Get to enjoy the the units for the like four months of the year that they might live in it because they have another one in New York, another one in uh, Miami. Uh, you know, and 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 yet gets to enjoy. So so, and I argue, I would argue that the that this, the financial machinations that are uh, uh, unfolding in these practices of buying are ultimately highly exploitive and they necessitate the poverty, um, in a place like, uh, these, these neighborhoods, but yet you get to have some ethical kind of comfort and insulation by saying, well, I've helped family needs. So the, the, so it's a very perverse thing, I think, um, that perpetuates systems of exploitation. But if you look at it more broadly, say in Vancouver, more systemically outside of this one building, the um, government um, planning systems are now like incredibly reliant on the, the the what are called the community amenity contributions and the development construction levies that are basically fees that the city takes off of all of these luxury condominium developments and uses to build things like um, daycares, community centers, art galleries. And so there is a very um, like the city is basically addicted, necessitates the production of these um, luxury condominium towers by Trek's like Vancouver House to um, produce all of what are seen deemed to be like good, positive things for the city, and in many ways they are. But I think it's a, it's a very complicated matrix that I think. Um, unfortunately, perpetuates a system of incredible inequity. So we could say, yes, of course, it's good to get a new daycare. If, yes, of course, it's good to get a new uh, community center. But I'm very suspicious of the system um, that has been created to produce them that is reliant on a, a very high, highly inequitable um, system that that ultimately perpetuates this uh, housing crisis that, that in, a, in a city like Vancouver.
1: Yeah, and I guess the Vancouver project is really uh, one of the most extraordinary um, kind of projects that illustrate that matrix, right? Because you have the luxury housing happening in Canada, supporting uh, kind of low-income housing in the other part of the world. And it's not something that you would um, immediately know or recognize. And so it really speaks to our interconnectivity Across the globe, really. Um, but in the end, and again, we could, since we're coming towards the end of the interview, there is a lot more that we can discuss relative to the book. But I, in the end, I felt that the book was not. Uh, not necessarily about casting judgment on the current conditions, although you have, I think, strong opinions about it. And I think you are um, advancing uh, that work uh, in the work that you're doing now at the Venice Biennale. but but rather, I thought that the book exposed was really more of an expose on the realities of the physical world and its link to invisible financial models that really generate them and in some cases have perhaps increased in a post-pandemic world, certainly in centers like London, like uh, New York, maybe. Well, New York is a is a very interesting example because there was an exodus, and now there seems to be a return. Uh, but certainly in places like Miami and Vancouver. Um, so it'll be interesting to see when that rise and fall of finance, the financial capitalist era, will come, and what might come next. Um, maybe the good topic for your next book, Matthew. But I do want to take at least a few minutes to turn to your work as a practicing architect, uh, because you are principal of Matthew Soul architecture and a founder of the national collective architects against housing alienation Um, what is the mission of this organization and can you tell us about the project that you're currently working on for the venice biennale or that you've actually that you have um that you have um worked on for the current exhibit
2: yeah so um i think it's it's probably clear to your listeners from the conversation we've been having um that you, that, that housing um, plays the central role in finance capitalist architecture. It is the building function of which the, the, the most heat and the most pressure of finance is on. Um, I mean, it also impacts, of course, commercial buildings and things like this. But so so um, our organization is um, uh, composed of architects uh, from across Canada, and activist organizations from across Canada and also housing advocacy groups, and in some cases, individual scholars. So we were very interested in bringing together multiple expertise, uh, multiple um, kind of positions and and seek to politicize architecture. um, and, And hence why we feel it's so important to work with activists and advocates. And we've collectively, there's, there's, uh, you know, folks in Halifax on the Atlantic Ocean, folks in Toronto, folks up north, amazing Indigenous housing leaders and experts, um, folks in Montreal, all coming together to um, form a, a campaign that we call Not For Sale. And the thing about Not, not For Sale is that ha- what we've been talking about today is how finance capitalism mutates housing to make it primarily to be sold, primarily an exchangeable asset. So we're fighting against that. And we're um, trying to find ways in which to build lots of new housing because we need lots of new housing in a country like Canada that is rapidly growing. um, Over a million new um, immigrants arrived in Canada last year. But if we build it within the current highly financialized system, we will not overcome... All of the incredible challenges we have around affordability, access to safe, unprecarious housing, to end homelessness, and we have to reinvent how the entire system works. So that's what our um, campaign, Not for Sale, is all about. And the uh, presence here in Venice is just a six month installation that is part of a much larger campaign that will unfold over a number of years in this. So I'm going to write.
1: I'm going to suggest that our listeners look up Architects Against Housing Alienation. And before we come to an end in a sentence or two, Matthew, what's your favorite city and why?
2: Oh, my gosh, it's so hard. It's so hard. (laughs) I have so many favorite cities. But um, one city I like a lot right now, it's always changing, is is Los Angeles, actually. I find Los Angeles to be like an incredibly fascinating place where there's so many different cultural groups, uh, amazing African American vibrant culture, um, the the Latino Latina culture, and and the Korean culture, and on and on. And I think what's what's incredibly fascinating about it is that it's very unprecious in its urbanism, which affords an incredible amount of experimentation among all of these fascinating and rich cultures.
1: Yeah, I, that, I don't think anybody's mentioned Los Angeles yet. So I'm so happy that you did. And I want to thank you, Matthew, for your work as a teacher, as a practitioner and an author, and for reminding us of the invisible and yet powerful networks that directly influence our physical world and the qualities of our built environment. I, for one, learned a great deal in reading your book. And next week, I'm going to be talking about one of the most important contemporary public space projects that are being executed in the United States, which is The Underline, a 10-mile linear park in Miami. My guests will include Meg Daly, the founder of the Friends of The Underline, and Isabel Castilla, a principal of the field operations, the design firm for the project. You can find all episodes um, on Apple iTunes or Spotify, or you can follow us on OnCities podcast on Instagram. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for listening and
0: see you next Friday. <laughs> Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week.